Would you remain standing as we read, as I read today's sermon text? It is the book of 2 John. This is the inspired word of God. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, uh, we just thank you for your word. We pray that you would speak to us now. Give us truth and give us love and help us to embrace embrace and express both of them we pray this in jesus name amen okay i i hate to do this right off the bat but i i've told many of you before that that my least favorite thing of the entire job of being a pastor is doing announcements. For some reason, announcements is, is just like my greatest phobia. I don't know, I, I just always mess them up. I never can quite do them quite right. I'd rather preach in front of a group of a million people worldwide and, and talk in front, it's not like talking in front of people. For some reason, announcements have been a problem. I always mess them up and I messed them up once again today. And then I don't know in the middle of the service what to do like because I don't want to draw attention away from things. But I do need to make this announcement as well that I forgot to make. Uh, Dana Stoddard's mother passed away this past week, so please be praying for her as well. Um, I just realized after the fact that I had forgotten to say that, and so I just wanted to express uh, 
you know, our love and support for Dana. That wasn't uh, intentionally, it was just I'm really, really, really bad at announcements. And so, uh, that said, I want to draw our attention back to the scriptures today. Uh, here in first or Second John, uh, we, we just had Easter last week. You'll recall the week before that, we finished First John as uh, a passage uh, that, that we'd preached through, the, the book of First John. And um, the question then becomes, at the end of any book, like where are we going to go next? And, and it occurred to me that, you know, when we get done with 1 John, like when we get done with any book, I feel really good. I'm like, wow, we completed that book. It's great to have preached through a book and completed it. It's just kind of a, a feeling of accomplishment. And it occurred to me that, boy, with 2 John and 3 John sitting right there, those are short enough that I could actually preach through both of those books in two weeks. So we could finish two more books in the next two weeks. And so I decided, that's a great idea. Let's do that. Um, second John is the second shortest book of the Bible. It's only book that it's short, is shorter than it is Third John. Uh, both of them are, are less than 250 words in the Greek manuscripts that they come from. And so we look now to Second John. We see that it warns against uh, the same kind of false teaching the first John warns against. So it really kind of goes together with it in series. Uh, that's, that's why it's in the Bible in, in that way, and that's what, part of the reason we can look to it today, having just preached through first John. It warns against the same false teaching that was mentioned in first John, and it, it looks to the themes that we talked about so much in first John. You recall two weeks ago we talked about how the two major themes were to know and to love, how those two things came up all the time, time and time again. And we'll see that in Second John, truth and love stand up, to know and to love. It, we broke the book up into three parts. We probably just have to say there's an introduction, there's the body of the letter, and then there's a conclusion. Really, it's a shorter letter, and so there's not a whole lot to it. But if we look at the introduction, we can really pull a lot out of it. Uh, these are not just wasted words. It begins, the elder, and, and when John writes this, he's referring to himself in his office as an elder over the church. And it's interesting that he, that he would use this as his office, as his title, if you will, an elder, because John, of course, was much more than an elder. He was an apostle. He had walked with Jesus. He was a friend of Jesus. Three years he had walked with He was the one who had literally leaned against Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. He, he was as close to Jesus as you could possibly get. He was an apostle, a higher title. And usually people refer to themselves by their highest title, and we refer to them that way, right? If you had been elected uh, to, uh, let's say, city council, and then later on got elected to mayor, and then got elected the governor, and then eventually got elected president of the United States, right? We, we would refer to you as president so-and-so, even after you weren't president anymore. You'd still be president, but we wouldn't refer to you as you know, city councilman such and such, because, because president is the highest office you had attained. And so that's the way we'd refer to you. But John doesn't do this when referring to himself here. It, it I think, shows a, a certain humility in that he's pointing to his, his role as an elder and not as an apostle. He's, he's 
also perhaps we're making reference to his age. He's an older man at this point. He is no longer the young disciple that has walked with Jesus, but he is a, an old man who, is, who has been weathered by life and experience. He has served the Lord for decades, and he has seen the Lord's faithfulness, not only in the years that he walked with him on the earth, but also in the many decades that have since followed. And he writes now to the elect lady and her Children. It's interesting here that lady is actually not the normal generic term for a woman. It's actually uh, a different term. It's the feminine form of the word lord, actually. Think of like the English aristocracy, lords and ladies, that kind of, that kind of idea. And, and it makes sense that the more we think about it that, that this highly respectable title would be used, this lofty language here, because because it's probably, it's possible that this is the case, but it's probably not talking about an actual specific lady. It, it, it could be that, that it is here, but I think it's highly unlikely that it's talking about a specific lady, that rather it's talking about a church. Right? He is speaking to a church and he refers to this local congregation as the elect lady. Right, normal convention in the day was to refer to large groups like a city or, or a, a country or a region or a province with, with a feminine uh, title like that. And we think even in, in our, our case, in our uh, usage today even, think of, think of the, the hymn, The Church's One Foundation, hymn 404 in your hymnal. If, if you want to look at it, you don't have to. But uh, you know, just think how it begins. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation of water in the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. Just think of the, the way we speak of that, and that, that way. It makes sense that we would use this kind of terminology. Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter 5 where he speaks to a church saying she, or speaks of a church saying she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends your greetings. And throughout the scriptures, we realize that the church as a whole is referred to as the bride of Christ, right? So the, the, this picture is kind of coming into form here, this, use of lady here, and especially, I think, if we think of this idea of a bride of Christ, the bride is somebody who, who marries the groom and becomes his wife in that, she takes his name, right? And so it would make sense that the church is kind of Mrs. Lord, right? Because Jesus is Lord. And so the elect lady, here, I think we believe best is a local congregation that, that John had had a relationship with. Perhaps he had planted the congregation. Perhaps he had been a part of nourishing it and nurturing it as it grew. Perhaps he had been an elder actually in that church, serving in that place for an extended period. We don't know the exact details, but we know that there is a close relationship because the very next words he says there, whom I love in truth. 
right? And we see that's the first connection in today's passage of those two ideas, right? Truth and love connected together. He says not, I love in the truth, but I love in truth, as if he's saying, I truly love you. It's contrasted with with the false teachers, you see, is the idea that he's making here. The, The idea that these false teachers, they come and they don't truly love you. They might claim that they love you. They might even think that they love you. But the reality is, if they are deceiving you, if they are leading you away from the truth, then they can't truly be loving you, right? Because what true love is not just an emotion, it's actually working on behalf, doing, acting on behalf of someone else for their good. And if they are leading you away from the truth, that is unquestionably not for your good. Truth and love bound together. And not only I, he says, but also all who know the truth. He says, all who know the truth, who have this this relationship with the truth, this intimacy with the truth, they all love you. They must love you, in fact, he says. Right, because Jesus, who says that he is the truth, has so captured the hearts of all who are in relationship with him that they must love all others who are in relationship with him. Jesus says that he is the truth, you recall, and and truth is really something that's kind of gone out of fashion these days, isn't it? Right, We, we hear people say things like, well, that's your truth, you know, or, or my truth was such and such. But, but the reality is is, is is that we need to not follow that line of teaching. We need to not waffle on it like, like Pilate did just last week. We were looking at Pilate, you know, as he, as he is examining Christ Jesus on Good Friday, right? And, and, and he asks that famous question, what is truth, right? There is truth. Truth is that which is, and we must not waver on that. We need to understand that truth is not something that is, is different for each person. Now our experience of the truth, how it impacts us, how it affects us, how it you know, is perceived by us might change, but the truth is the truth. And this is especially so of the gospel. Right? The gospel is unchanging over all time. There's nothing different about it now than there was in the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so we need to understand that faith that Jude says we we contend for, that faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. Or as John puts it in verse 2, because the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. This truth is, is what binds us together. It is forever in us. It is the truth out of which love arises. You see, other groups, other than the church, can be united by all kinds of things, right? You can have a, a club that, that uh, likes to gather together and play ultimate Frisbee, right? And you're, you're going to be surround, you know, around the Frisbee. Or, or it could even be something like we, we want to gather together and, and do good deeds. You know, we want to, 
We want to clean up the neighborhood. We want to uh, have a, uh, a soup kitchen. We want to do all kinds of things like that. And those are wonderful things. There's nothing wrong with that. Those are good. But, but doing those things does not make you the church. That the church must have at its center the truth of the gospel which plays itself out in love. And so we're united around Christ who is truth and love. John Stott put it this way. He says, we love each other not because we are temperamentally compatible or because we are naturally drawn to one another, but because of the truth which we share. See what he's saying there is, is it's not that we're all here together because we're all just like each other or we like all the same things or we would naturally get along with each other even otherwise. Rather, we are all together here because of Jesus and the centrality of Jesus in our lives. He goes on to say, so long as the truth endures in us and with us, so long shall our reciprocal love endure. If this is so, and Christian love is founded upon Christian truth. We shall never increase the love that exists between us by diminishing the truth we hold in common. In the contemporary movement towards church unity, we must beware of compromising the very truth on which alone true love and unity depends. Does this mean we have to agree on everything? Absolutely not. There's certainly room for differences of views on on things like uh, you know, baptism and who exactly should be baptized. You know, our Baptist brothers and sisters would differ from us, but we have a bond of love with them centered on Christ. Uh, you might have a different understanding of ecclesiological government, right? That it, it should, the church should be governed in different ways, that, and that's all right. But what must be agreed upon is the gospel, that we are sinners, that Christ died for our sins and that reconciliation with God, being made right with God, having forgiveness from God can only occur through faith in Christ Jesus, that there is no other way by which we might be saved. There is only Jesus if we are to be reconciled to God. And so he says here in verse three, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. Grace, which is, is exhibited toward the guilty and the condemned, mercy, which is given toward the, the helpless and the needy, peace, which goes toward those who are at enmity or at conflict with God, with each other, even with themselves. And you'll notice it's not a prayer, it's not a request that he is making. He's not saying, may grace, mercy, and peace be with us all. No, he says it will be with us all. How can he say this? He, how can he have such confidence? It's because he has experienced it and he knows it. He walked with Jesus and he saw the trustworthiness of Jesus and Jesus has promised this to us. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us as we trust in him. It's not something that we work harder to get. It's not something that we 
we do so that we could get a reward. Rather, it is a necessary result of our salvation. As we trust in him and we are saved, grace becomes ours, mercy becomes ours, peace becomes ours. We experience these. It doesn't mean it'll all be easy. It doesn't mean life will be free of any troubles or worries. For sure they will exist, but God says, I will hold you through them. I will carry you through them, and you will know my grace and my mercy and my peace. You will experience those, but also a change will occur in us so that we will be more gracious toward others. We will be more merciful to others. We will be more peaceful toward others, seeking to reconcile with them and be right with them. As this flows from the Father to us and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. Right, these blessings come to us by virtue of God's truth and love. Every blessing we enjoy comes from God and is a fruit of his love to us in Christ Jesus. What wonderful truths. And that's just the introduction. (laughs) We haven't even gotten to what the letter's about yet. Well, he says in verse four, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. What a wonderful thing. John's joy is bound up in seeing the fact that people are walking with God and experiencing the fullness of life and the joy and, and the, the life, the abundant life that they are meant to exhibit. He, he is overjoyed that they are living in this way. They are walking in the truth. Ian Hamilton speaks to this. He says, to walk in the truth is to live under the authority of the truth. God's truth is not only to be believed and confessed, it is to be obeyed. Truth is for living. Right? Sometimes I think we can have a tendency, especially in a Presbyterian church, to, to because we value uh, the idea of learning and knowledge and truth. We, we can sometimes become uh, very cerebral about our faith, right, and, and not put it into action, right? We need to put it into action. Truth is not just for our minds. It's so that uh, we would live it out, right? It should, should make it from our, our head down to our feet so that we walk the walk that is prescribed by the truth, God hasn't given us his truth so we can simply just understand it. Furthermore, he's certainly not given it to us that we can pick and choose the parts of it we like and then throw away the others that we don't like. When we do that, we, we act as if we know better than he does what would be best for us. We make ourselves uh, the, to be sovereign over God as opposed to seeing him as the sovereign God who knit us together in our mother's wombs, who made us as we are and knows what is best for us, if we're to be the church and truly be the church, we must walk in the truth. Now there's always gonna be a mix, of course, right? You know, we're not all going to always walk in the truth. Now we wanna be careful here. I, I don't say that to kind of create a division for us to say as we sit around in the sanctuary, oh yeah, I see that guy. He, he's definitely not really walking in the truth. And, Oh my, she, she's really not, you know, that's not the reason I say that. I say it more that we might focus inward on ourselves, not dividing us versus them, but rather 
rather making sure that we are walking in the truth, making sure that we, we are following the ways that we ought to follow, not making sure they are following the ways that they're to follow, but make sure I am. Right? Look at your own heart and, and think about that and see if we are walking as Jesus would have us walk. And now I ask you, dear lady, he writes in verse five, not as though I were writing a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. That's really what it comes down to in the end, right? As we walk with the Lord and we relate to one another, we are to love one another. Sometimes we don't do a very good job of that. Sometimes we, we fail, sometimes I fail, I often fail at loving well. When we fail, we should, we should be glad that it is brought to our attention, whether it be the Holy Spirit bringing it to our attention or our brother and sister in Christ bring it to our attention. As painful as it may be, we should be glad because it gives us the opportunity to repent of our failings and to go forward loving one another better. And this is love, verse six, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Right, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's not just knowing things, it's not just, not just being spiritual, right? We, we remember when we went through 1 Corinthians 13 and talked about it at the very beginning of it, how if you can do all things and know all things and believe all things and do miracles and prophesy, do all these things, but don't have love, you're, it's all worth nothing, right? We must be grounded in love. For many deceivers, verse seven, have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the antichrist. We're not gonna go too far into this because you'll recall in in 1 John, he said virtually the same thing, right? We need to realize that Jesus did come in the flesh. He is the Son of God who takes, who, who, who's existed from all eternity. He is the second person of the Trinity, but he has come and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh, fully human, to live on our behalf. So watch out. But it's interesting what he says in verse eight. He says, watch yourselves. Again, he doesn't say, watch out for them. Watch out for those bad teachers. Although that's certainly implied, right? That's certainly the idea. But, but he specifically says, watch yourselves. And I think too often the church is focused on, and I say the church including myself in this, too often the church is focused on the ills of the world, and we become so fixated on the ills of the world that we look right past our own sins. We stumble into sin, sometimes we rush headlong into sin, all the while saying, I thank God I am not like them. We see it all the time in, in, in all kinds of places, right, we see it in you know, I'm a sports fan, so you know, if a guy on my team, you know, does something terrible, you know, well, he had his reasons, you know, whereas 
the rival's team, well, he's just a horrible human being, obviously. Right? And that's kind of a funny one. It gets a little more serious when we look at it in politics, right? Because the, the guy in my party, you know, did this stuff, and, but, but, you know, he had his reasons, you know. As opposed to the other party who did the same thing, you know, they're horrible and evil. Regardless of where we see it, it shouldn't be seen in the church. If we don't decry the sin of people on our side, and especially our own sin, with the same amount of strength and passion as we decry that of those on the other side, then the curtain's really been pulled back on the truth, hasn't it? It's not the sin that we hate, it's the people. And if you're constantly hearing a pastor calling other people to repent of their sins, but never hearing him call you to repent of yours, right? You might be in the wrong church because we need to be called to repent of our sin, not somebody else's. John Flavel put it this way. He said, it is easier to cry against 1,000 sins of others than to kill one of your own but we need to kill our own sin. We need Christ to kill our own sin. So watch yourselves, he says, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full, full reward. He's not talking about losing your salvation because, because if you are saved by God through Christ, then he holds you in his eternally omnipotent, loving hands, and he holds you in his eternally unchanging sovereign plan. Right? So, so you will not be lost, but, but you can lose something. Right? You can lose the joy that would go along with walking with him faithfully. Right? That's, that's I think, you know, we, we sometimes say you know, doing good is its own reward, and I think there's a sense in which that's true. Right? As, as we love others, there's a joy that's in, inherent in that. I think that's part of the reward, the full reward, is the joy that will come along with that. Well, we need, we need to move on quickly here. Verse nine says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of God does not, Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son, right? So we need to stay in Christ. And then he says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching. So this is one of these false teachers who, who wants to lead you to another understanding of Christ, who, who, who wants to lead you away from the Christ who truly is. Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. I think that what this is talking about is not actually uh, receiving him into a, an individual home, you know, but, but rather actually talking about receiving him into the church, right? I think that that's the idea because the, the, that's another picture that is often used in the scriptures, right? The, the scriptures talk about the church as, as, as a home that, uh, that's built on the chief cornerstone of Christ, right? We are built up into him and says, don't receive those who want to teach a different Christ, who want to teach a different gospel, right? You can't just say, this comes back to the idea that we talked to the truth. You can't just say, well, we'll all just kind of get along 
and be the church here. That doesn't mean that they can't come here, they can't hear the word of God preached, they can't sing the hymns with us, but, but there is a sense in which membership is reserved for those who will fully give their lives to Christ Jesus, who lived and died and rose again, who eternally existed with the Father, and who reigns on high. Now this must be the Christ we worship. Well, in closing, he says, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. And the children of your elect sister greet you. These point to the corporate nature of the church. Right, that, that phrase, the children of your elect sister, like the elect lady and her children in verse one, pointing to this idea that, that the church has not just a vertical dimension of God making us his children, but of us being bound together as family as well. It's good to realize that, that we're not just individuals. We're not just a bunch of individuals doing the same thing in the same place. We are united together as, as, as a body with Christ as the head. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, it's telling that he didn't just say we're gonna have a meal that's an important meal, now everybody go home and eat it on your own, right? It, it was a communal meal to be partaken of together. And in the early church, they often did so in the context of what was called a love feast, where it was an expression of their common love for one another. That common love that Jesus said would be first and foremost among all the traits of how the church would be identified. The way they loved one another. They were to love one another. We are to love one another the way Jesus has loved. And greater love have no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. This is exactly what Jesus did. And this very act, this very death is what we proclaim each time we come to the Lord's table. We eat the bread, we drink the cup. We taste and see that the Lord is good. We come to feast on Jesus that our faith might be nourished and that our love might be strengthened, our love for God and our love for one another. We come to partake this meal, not just as a a reflection of our individual faith, but as a, a reflection of our communal reality that though we are many different members, we together are one body, Christ's body with his spirit dwelling within us. And so as we prepare to come to the table, let us proclaim our common faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed, which you'll find in your bulletin. These ancient words convey the truth that has been held to by people who are God's people throughout the centuries all over the world. Let us proclaim them together. My brothers and sisters in Christ, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, 
who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Apostle Paul tells us that I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We need to remember that this is not a Presbyterian table. It's not my table. It is the table of the Lord. So it is open to all who are in the Lord, all who trust in him alone for salvation. If you don't, though, it really is best for you to refrain from partaking uh, just because of those words he said at the end. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You, we're, we're affirming the Lord's death. We're saying, yes, I'm glad the Lord died. I'm glad that Jesus died. We as believers can say that because we, we in a sense, though sorrowed and mournful and grieving that it had to occur, we're glad that he died because he died for us. He died to bear the weight of our penalty. He paid for our sins on Calvary's cross, and so we are glad. But if you don't trust in him, then you're merely shaking your fist at God. And so I would urge you to refrain from partaking if you are not one who trusts in him. Before we do partake of the Lord's Supper, though, would you pray with me. Lord, we thank you that you have given us this sacrament, this sign and seal of the covenant of grace that we might through faith partake of you, that we might have our faith nourished and our love strengthened. We pray that indeed you would bless us now Help us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. The Lord who is with us always is indeed with us in a very special way as we partake of this meal. And to all who would trust in him for salvation, he says, take, eat, this is my body. And in the same way, he does indeed say, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do it as often as you drink it in remembrance 
of me. That very first time they partook of the Lord's Supper, they, of course, were told Scripture, went from there singing a hymn, Would you rise with me so that we too might sing a hymn? Hymn number 336, O Sacred Head, Now Wounded. 